Unthinkable is an independent podcast supported by listeners like you and our sponsor, Riverside, the easiest way to record audio and video right from your browser in studio-grade quality. I make shows for a living. I make this show. I've made shows in-house when I was an employee for different brands, and now I consult brands to make their shows, and often I'm installed as the host. It's a lot of fun. It's a weird, wonderful niche, but the thing that's not wonderful and always was kind of weird was how lo-fi most technologies use to make shows are today. Either you spend a ton of money and you have to like build an actual studio or use some kind of crazy software that is just a little beyond my time commitment, or you have these lo-fi tools or, or shoehorn in a conference call app like Zoom or, or Skype and try to record good quality audio that way. It just doesn't work. But Riverside has solved all those problems and it's why I use their platform for all my shows. So you can check out their tools and start recording for free at riverside.fm. Here's a sweeping generalization that seems so true. We live in the noisiest era in history. Now, I'm sure in the year 1465, some intrepid entrepreneur set up their brand new printing business, you know, to publish some pamphlets about a chicken or turnips or whatever. I'm sure that person was met with all kinds of familiar sounding pushback. Maybe a friend sauntered up to them to say, "Mm, I don't know about this new business of yours, Archibald. There are just so many pamphlets today. The world doesn't need even more. And our friend Archie might spit right back. Okay, thanks, Balthazar, but listening to you makes about as much sense as taking advice from a bunch of birds tweeting. Let it arrive, let it arrive, and there it is. For as long as humans created stuff, we've declared, or we've been told, there's simply too much stuff. And what other stuff needs to be created? Said another way, what's even left to say? Well, imagine that we started in a different place. What might change if we stopped focusing on what we should say and started focusing on what we might ask? What if we began our creative process not in search of some ingenious insight or pithy opinion? What if it all began with curiosity, but a very specific type? Today, we hear the story of that type of curiosity, a type that leads to the kinds of questions that might help us stand out, questions which are sitting two or three layers down from what everyone else is focused on. The team of creative people that we hear about in this story competes in a way noisier and more competitive space than pamphlet printing or software or pretty much anything we could imagine in our work. And yet they stand out. They have earned passionate fans, millions of them, because they resonate deeper. And it's why, to their fans, the YouTubers known as new rock stars are exactly that. It's fun and smart and right there for us to try. It's unthinkable, exploring why work resonates and how ours can too. I'm Jay Akunzo.
Okay, so here's what happens every single time I watch a new movie from Marvel Studios. Let's take a recent one as an example, like The Eternals. I watched that on demand from the comfort of my own home. After seeing The Eternals, I had these big but obvious questions. For example, what do these characters from the movie look like in the comics? So I went to Google Images and I found a graphic that somebody had created, helpfully stitching together the movie version and the comic book version of each character side by side. I know somebody created this, but I got a simple answer to an obvious question and never formed a relationship or even wanted to with whatever media company or creator made it. Another obvious question I had after The Eternals, will there be a sequel? So I went to Google and there I found a headline that sounded very similar to my actual search. The headline read, Eternals 2 release date, everything we know about Marvel's latest film. So I clicked it. And then I started what I call the scroll past the SEO. As the page loads, I skip the first bunch of paragraphs, which only serve to catch Google's bots because it describes all these basic details I just don't need to know anymore or care to ask, summarizing the entire plot of the film, making very sure to mention all the characters and actors with embedded videos and imagery and a bunch of subheaders with keywords stuffed into them. It's a similar experience to most recipe blogs. Have you ever visited a recipe blog online? They all look the same. They all look just like these nerd culture blogs for the most part too. And it's like, look, I don't need to know your entire family history with baked stuff shrimp. I just want the freaking recipe so I can cook some freaking dinner for my freaking family. <clears throat> Sorry, I, uh, I get hangry. Anyway, Marvel's Eternals. I scroll past the SEO-focused junk, which on the nerd culture blog meant past endless pointless paragraphs and subheaders and images and embedded videos all focused on the bot, not the reader. The site is still loading a dozen or so banner ads, none of which I have ever actually clicked on in my entire life. And there, sitting partway down the page, finally, I arrive at the answer. Will there be a sequel? Here's what we know. And here's what it said. Marvel has not yet announced plans for a sequel. Ah! Why did I go through this torture? It all feels... Inevitable. Well, partly it's because I've asked the obvious questions. I'm seeking quick answers. And people who answer obvious questions in quick ways are creating commodity content. They're among the most competitive niches on the internet today. So most content creators who focus most of their time on the questions most people are asking most of the time give you, well... Ah... That's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. But then, after I get through the lowest common denominator questions and therefore content, there's a question I can't shake from the movie The Eternals. I think, wait a second, at the end of the film, a giant character hardens into a giant statue of stone, and they're so big, they pierce the ozone layer of the Earth. Wouldn't that be like, bad for the planet? And also, wouldn't all the other Marvel movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe know about this and have to deal with the consequences? And that's when I head to YouTube and I visit the channel New Rockstars. And sure enough, that is the exact question that they were addressing in their latest video. Welcome back to New Rockstars, I'm Eric Voss, and now that Marvel's Eternals is available on Disney+, everyone is now coming to terms with the wild implications of that movie's finale. Namely, what the hell happens to Earth now with a massive celestial corpse towering into the stratosphere? Like, we all got- New Rockstars competes in the most saturated space imaginable. They talk about the most popular IP in nerd culture, Marvel, DC, Star Wars, and the like. 
millions of fans, hundreds of established media companies, and thousands of emerging professional creators and niche publications all create content about the same topics that new rock stars covers. What's even left to say? Well, remember, maybe we should think, what's left to ask? And what's left to ask are the lingering questions. That is what the fans of new rock stars and their nearly 4 million subscribers have come to know and love from them. Deep analysis, fan theories, and breakdowns driven mostly by a nose for the lingering questions on your mind. To understand how this came to be, I talked to their co-founder, Philip Molina. To this day, we found that our subscribers are rarely subscribed to any other channel. And so we ended up tapping into people who did not go to YouTube. But it starts in that first moment of, well, when do I go to YouTube? And it's, I have a question that I want answered in video form, right? I don't want it answered written because if it's written, I'll find that answer way and faster than anybody can make a video about it, which is why I didn't like getting into the idea of news. Even though I was being pushed a lot, you want to do trending content, then we should do news. I was like, we will always be later than not just every article in the world, but then even the CNNs of the world, right? All the video is going to be covered too. So I didn't like news, but I liked the lingering question concept because that had to be answered in video form. And so that was the opportunity Philip was thinking about back in 2015. That was the year Fast and Furious 7 came out the first film following the death of franchise star Paul Walker. I wanted to know how are they going to pull off this thing where I'd heard rumors they were going to bring his brothers in, they were going to do like face remapping and, and all this stuff. And so we made a unusual format version of a show we'd been doing that was a news show. And I remember the titling was even more of a test at the time. I think it was called like Fast Furious Paul Walker CGI. Or something like that, like some sort of like a gobbledygook. But that was like kind of what I would type into YouTube for what I'd be trying to look up, which is just like, how are they going to do it? Is it going to look bad? I think is part of the secret question too that I that I also had. And that video only focused on that one question, and that was the newest thing that we had done, which was instead of talking about what everybody's talking about, it was just being the answer to a lingering question that people mm-hmm. had, uh, and not the most obvious question either. For this show, I've now interviewed about 200 people. I have never, ever heard somebody discuss topic selection behind the scenes or content strategy in the terms Philip just used. Sure, New Rockstar's answers some of the obvious things that everyone is searching for, maybe as a way to get found. I get that. But they build their subscription strategy, their ability to go beyond awareness and develop actual affinity. They build that approach and that content around the lingering question, that second or third layer down from what everybody else is already addressing. It's how they stand out in a noisy niche. It's also just how Philip has always watched movies with his friend and New Rockstar's co-founder and the primary talent on the New Rockstar's YouTube channel, Eric Voss. Here's Philip again. After we would watch movies together in college, we would talk about them for like an hour or so. Then we'd play the movie again with the commentary. And then we would read articles and share them with each other about like, hey, Fincher was doing this and that that scene. And it felt like we trained ourselves to feel like that was the only complete version of a, a movie watching experience. And so now I think even someone who has never seen a breakdown, which is kind of our flagship content, and doesn't know that this kind of stuff exists, they still feel a sense of asymmetry when they watch something. In Doctor Strange, why does the movie have such a long opening shot of 
Doctor Strange washing his hands. It's it's the first shot in the movie, so it's like clearly they're paying a lot of attention to this for some reason. And it's not like it like comes up like, ooh, there's a germ on his hand that gets through to a patient <laughs> and it kills him or whatever. But then, you know, all the way in an isometrical way at the end of the film, it closes on a shot of his hands that are completely mangled, and yet he is doing this like amazing magic. And, you know, he had these pristine hands in this perfect sterile environment before. And without getting into breakdowns or whatever, it's a nice explanation of the kind of journey that we help people connect the two dots on. And now they feel, ooh, that's a satisfying click. By going a layer or two deeper with curiosity, we can stand out. We can ask questions and therefore address questions that others aren't already talking about endlessly. New Rockstars does that incredibly well. They find something new to talk about in one of the most saturated spaces on planet Earth and any other part of the universe or multiverse. And as a result, their videos have become a kind of companion experience to people like me who love Marvel movies. I mean, I can't watch Marvel without immediately going to watch New Rockstars right after. This pairing is a bit weird and pretty unlikely if you think about it. Just compare the two organizations' resources to be creative and to promote that creativity to the world. The most expensive Marvel movie ever made was Avengers Endgame, which cost the studio more than $350 million to make. And I say it that way intentionally, more than $350 million. The exact number was $356 million. But that $6 million to Marvel is just an accounting error. It's a giant nothing burger to the MCU. Six million extra bucks to make a film? Imagine what six million extra dollars would do to a YouTuber trying to make their next three hours of content. That's not a rounding error. That's a life-changing lump sum. That's the difference between Marvel and new rock stars. The Marvel Cinematic Universe has released 27 films as of March 2022, and they've grossed more than $25 billion dollars. And that's just ticket sales. This says nothing of all the other ways that their characters and stories are productized and sold. 25 billion in ticket sales, probably tens of billions more from the IP, and millions of fans go from consuming that organization's content over to a few scrappy YouTubers creating their content in a single room. To take us inside that room, I talked to the first person hired to run operations for New Rockstars, Holiday Kennard. Holiday went on to become the VP of operations at New Rockstars and today is the COO of Zero Edition, an influencer-driven apparel company that New Rockstars uses to sell their merchandise. I asked Holiday to take us inside that tiny little room, the first office where New Rockstars began creating content about the world's biggest franchises. It was just one, like kind of large room that three or four of us worked out of and had multiple sets in it and just this one big room. So you walk in, on the right is our our first panel show set. So the wall, that corner is sort of decked out. So maybe a wide shot of the cosmos with white stars and purple and black colors. Some sort of wallpaper and little toys and all that stuff. Action figures like Iron Man and Batman though no Baby Yoda just yet. And then like the table and stools they would sit at. And then... Rotating further, a couple of desks for Holiday and co-founder and on-air talent Eric Voss. Then 
On the wall, sort of opposite Eric's desk, is the blue backdrop. The famous new rock star's blue void, a sheet of solid blue where Eric and other on-air talent might appear. And so Philip is incredibly good at figuring out sort of the technical solution that is high quality, but works in any scenario. And so what we had in this office was what we called the rack. And it's like this rolling, it's a shelf, a big shelf, a big metal shelf on wheels. And it had the camera, the lights, everything you needed technologically to record a video. Definitely ask Philip about the rack because that was an entirely, like his own creation that like always sort of blew my mind. Tell me about the rack. The rack was a combination of OCD and like a fierce need to both be able to solve everything by myself, but also be able to never exceed the budget that we had for the company. I had a rule very early on that we couldn't spend a dollar that we hadn't made. So this is the first stage after a bedroom in my apartment was a conference room in an accounting building that was the New Rockstar's headquarters, HQ, and and also the shooting space and also the meeting area. It was such a small space, and there were three of us at that time, me, Holiday, and Eric, and the In-N-Out editor. We just couldn't leave the setup in place. I was now becoming too busy. I'm pretty technically savvy, so I could set it up myself, but I couldn't be there for every shoot. And this is very much as I was handing off to Eric on most of the mm. shooting. And Eric, as brilliant as he is, knows nothing about tech. Like, breaks <laughs> everything he touches. So I had to build something. You just basically, like, put everything onto this one rack. You know, influencers now, a lot of them use ring lights. And yeah. this is kind of like almost like you could imagine the perimeter of the rack as a mega ring light, this giant rectangle of light, right? There's this giant light across the top, across the bottom, and then smaller lights down the sides. And then in that, in the center of it, I put our camera and our teleprompter and whatnot, and then had a, like, rigged-in boom arm that reached out, like, you know, eight, six, <laughs> six and a half feet or whatever to to be our backup microphone. And then I had, I marked up the ground like crazy with the way you track in hospitals, the lines with tape to tell yeah, you, yeah. Like, this is the route to take. And then I hooked all of it up to Alexa. I was very on my home automation <laughs> kick at the time. Eric could just wheel it into place, stand in the spot that was marked for him, and just say, turn on rack, turn on background lights, and then he would have to just hit record. <laughs> so he was able to actually feel like we were in a, a legitimate studio. But also that allowed him some nights, you know, some something would air at 10 p.m. that night. Maybe he, he knocked out something quick. He could go into that room at midnight or 1 a.m. by himself. This is not what people picture when they picture high-level production work shared with multiple millions of viewers every video. Maybe they picture some sacred space with all kinds of soundproofing and fancy gadgetry. No interruptions, no background noises, no concerns about how good this is going to be. And so this myth, I think, echoes in small ways into our daily lives. Sure, we might not be new rock stars, but because we imagine the best of the best having all these fancy gear to create something high fidelity, we might think, well, I can't write my newsletter unless I rearrange my office. Or maybe I should order the right desk chair first. I think of a lot of podcasters I know who have a gorgeous, very expensive setup in their home office, but then of course their shows are pretty mediocre because they're not saying anything that matters. They haven't learned how to develop a show premise or how to perform on a microphone. 
The gadgets are nice, but the gadgets are incremental. The fundamental is about our commitment to the craft. This is far more about the wizards, not the wands. Of course, it's possible for a wizard to start out by reciting some kind of magic spell that none of their eventual apprentices can master themselves. And so those apprentices just end up getting tangled up in their own oversized wizard robes, tripping over themselves while casting spells they didn't mean to cast, turning their peers into frogs and bats and lizards. That's a really long, roughly relevant metaphorical way of saying, in our efforts to be scrappy, especially early, we might create systems that help us then, but hurt us in the long run as we start to scale or collaborate or bring on new people or work on new projects. And I really love the self-awareness that Philip showed when he talked to me about this idea at New Rockstars and specifically how his early systems, including the rack, despite being a smash hit early on, may have made things harder the more the team grew. So even though I was one person that created that entire system and made it so one other person could not understand any of it and use it, in the long run, might have actually been better for me to teach everyone else on the team how to set up all of those things, give them the institutional knowledge back then. And the reason I say that now is that like the ripples of things that just live in my head that I've since tried to pass on, it's it's often it feels like a band-aid of we're throwing a process on top of something that really still is just going to rely asking Philip for what we should do instead of way back then it would have felt very it wouldn't have felt as efficient and I think that's why I might have still rejected it you're gonna work you know 10 12 16 hours today so let's not pretend that you're being like super efficient but in in five years you know you might think you're down to working like three hours a day and everything still ends up having to climb back up to you because you did things like this at the beginning. So while I'm very proud of of having bootstrapped myself up out of every single situation I've ever been in, I now can see that it it creates a need for you in your company that starts to make it like, well, you can't bootstrap yourself out of quicksand at a certain point, right? You keep pulling yourself back in deeper and making yourself more essential, which might sound really good for job security, but actually is bad for you know long-term scalability. I came out of software companies and you know you learn about a phrase called tech debt, right? It's like you build a certain way because you make these trade-offs early because you are resource constrained or have aggressive early goals to grow, to reach the next milestone in customers and revenue, maybe venture capital raises, but you, you incur this tech debt and then eventually you have to pay the debt. I think of this with Unthinkable all the time. Unthinkable could be a straight-ahead interview show. And early on, I said, I'm so sick of business shows, which are aimless, like, talking topics with experts. I, I embody a category, which unlike, you know, maybe entertainment or other categories, there seems to be this lack of originality or even care for the experience of other people. It's just, we got a smart person, so we're just mm -hmm. going to talk to them. I started over-engineering, right? So I, I, and it was exciting and people responded to it. It's like narrative show, but in this space and sound design and music and multiple voices to tell a story and all these things. As soon as I realized I have other opportunities I'd like to pursue or I'd like to grow this thing, it broke down. It was my version of the rack because I had to say, oh, wait, so I'm bringing on a producer. Here's a rundown that approximates what I've tried to do so far, but was purely gut or purely like me duct taping a million things together that mm -hmm. as soon as you add a little tiny bit of jet fuel to it, explodes. Were I to pop out of a time hole next to my old self and say, 
dude, this is, do you see this gray hair? Do you see what you did to yourself? <laughs> Back then I would have been like, nah, you're wrong. No, get out of the way. So I think there's like a creator's version of, of tech debt that I, maybe we need to give language to it. Because the more I talk to creators today, the more it's just burnout is everywhere, scaling is a challenge, and we're paying off what basically is our version of tech debt left and right. You can't start even hinting at the fact that somebody might be headed toward burnout uh, because that's the career ender. For, for every single creator that I know in, in my personal life even, that's what's ended every single one of them is some version of burnout at a, at a certain point. When you make content, you you have this opportunity to control every single uh, element from production to content, programming strategy, all of it. And when that works and does well, there's a nice ego boost there of, of saying, uh, you figured it out. You did reinvent the wheel. You did come up with something so original and so fresh that this is how it should be done. Why I credit her with saving us from the, the possibility of burnout is what most creators I find struggle with is the ability to hand off any element early yes. on enough yes. to trust. And so it's not even necessarily that they are so worried about, you know, am I doing it right and somebody else is doing it wrong, or whatever. It still is this element of ego that says you were the one that did it best and these people couldn't have done it. You can either admit that you might be pretty good, but maybe a team of people could be great. You know, that, that's not such a huge sacrifice of your ego uh, to say like, yeah, I guess uh, all the people on earth could figure this out to, together <laughs> and fight me. Uh, or you have to admit that, that maybe you are the best at that thing and maybe that's not sustainable. And so now I'm having to do both, right? Let people know that it needs to not be me. It needs to come from them. It's okay if it comes from a group of them that helps my ego. There has to be somebody involved that doesn't ask for that permission, right? That like comes in and just says, I solved this thing in a way you never would have thought of. And that's an energy that's very hard to teach. So even though I want to extricate myself more, I'm starting to find maybe that's one of the few things that is going to keep coming from me until we have more people in the room like that of, hey, let's do something that no one has even thought of before. When they started, new rock stars looked very different than today. In 2011, they used to interview what we once called new media creators. But in 2015, they changed course to focus on the biggest properties driving nerd culture, especially in film and TV. And that change was brought on thanks in large part to that fast and furious Paul Walker video that we heard about earlier. As they got progressively more strategic with panel shows and content that required on-air talent to really focus on being on-air talent, as they grew, new rock stars needed a systems thinker to keep it all organized. Someone to do for people and process what the rack had done for production, but in a way that would actually scale with the business. Someone to help them go from a few people in an apartment to their current team of 20. And as all of us creators do when we find some traction and our ambitions and responsibilities only increase, new rock stars needed to shift from a group of people creating video after video until they burned out into a thriving, sustainable assembly line of content and ever-improving creativity. In short, they needed a head of operations whom you heard briefly before, Holiday Canard. How did you get started? Uh <laughs> Just, I guess it sounds like we might have sort of buried the lead here. This episode might be about to get a lot more interesting. I don't know if Philip mentioned, but we actually dated for like 12 years. What was I doing before was running different small businesses. I kind of just lucked or worked my way up or some combination of both into some 
high-level operations roles at a very young age. I had run operations at a nail salon, an acting school, and a law firm. And so basically I got there and they were making like two videos a week. And Philip was like, I wanna make seven videos a week. It's like, how about three every other week? And I, I think within a year, we were at seven a week. I guess you mentioned assembly line. So at first Ford, didn't make cars that way, right? They used the the craft method. Right. They would just all build one car at a time. That's sort of what they were doing. Just make a video, make another video. And so I guess I sort of created that assembly line process over time. So not only did I hire everyone that works there, but I also determined what roles we should hire for. Nearly everyone that has ever been hired at New Rockstars still works at New Rockstars. We have near 100% employee retention over four or five years. One thing that I'm endlessly obsessed with, and appropriately enough for New Rockstars, I like to say it the same way every time, I am obsessed with the code of the matrix of creativity. I'm so fascinated by that, how all the tiny little parts and pieces that the end consumer of something doesn't see are actually what great creators really do see and control to create something that we love, something that seems somehow superhuman. Because whereas everyone else gets the final product, the creator knows, well, this creativity stuff is just the sum total of lots and lots of very tiny moving parts and pieces. All these little decisions and things and techniques that I am in control of behind the scenes to create something that others think is just one awesome or big or refreshing thing. New Rockstars understands the code of their own matrix. And Holiday is a big reason why. They don't just see content or YouTube channel. They see their internal systems, which enable that creativity. They see the code. We call them, this is not a real term. It's just an internal term. But, but we call them blue screens and panel shows. Uh, a blue screen just because we do them in front of the blue screen. But that's going to be pretty much always a solo hosted videos. And they're going to be in that shorter length. Welcome back to New Rockstars. I'm Eric Voss, and this is a breakdown of the new trailer for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Now, this is a For example, they might dissect the recent Doctor Strange trailer from Marvel to point out what tiny little objects hidden in the margins of a quick shot might actually be really important to the plot of the upcoming film. I need to go through this frame by frame to break down the new details that we can now see. We call those all blue screens. And they also have panel shows, this other category, with two hosts or a whole panel of writers and creators and online personalities who analyze similar topics to new rock stars. They're actually weekly episodes. And we also release these as podcasts. So there's Inside Marvel, which is going to be a panel show. And then there's Big Question. Welcome back to New Rockstars. This is The Big Question, the show that gives you too much information on why sometimes the villain might just be right. I mean, sure, some cities may need to be destroyed and some of your morals may need to be compromised. But in the end, you'll see why all those people had to die. <laughs> My name is MT, and with me... <laughs> Don't turn to the dark Sorry. side. 
Everyone at New Rockstar loves the villains seriously. too much. Maybe you aren't a Marvel fan and don't care about the latest Batman movie, but I'd imagine someone somewhere is as nerdy as you are about whatever it is you're nerdy about. And they might provide in-depth, smart, and entertaining thoughts about whatever lingering questions you have. And when you find them, even though they're commenting on that first original thing, the source of your shared interests, you now appreciate that first thing more because of their breakdowns, because of their opinions and theories. For me, I would enjoy the MCU a lot less without new rock stars, this group of friends and colleagues which started in a single room filming their videos in front of the rack. That channel, those people, and their creativity are now inextricably linked to Marvel, owned by Disney, and all the money and fame that they have access to. I asked Philip, as a co-founder of New Rockstars, how do you make sense of all that? The time that it probably, you know, you feel a bit gobsmacked, it are times when the the two realities touch. For example, when, when James Gunn... James Gunn, director of Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. When James Gunn comments on a video we made and says, like, yeah, they nailed it. Or I I now am lucky enough to work, well, and, and through my job, but also through just living in L.A. and whatnot, I now know enough people that work at Marvel and we don't use them as resources. They they would they have their dream job, and they're not ever gonna you know risk that. But one thing that does come up is, of course, they know you exist. Of course, we have changed how we create content since the years of breaking down the art films ha- uh, has been happening to the point now where there he's like, of course, there are rooms full of. What kind of Easter eggs and things are we going to put into this for people on YouTube to find? I don't think they necessarily want to say new rock stars. And also, there's plenty, there's other people that do what we do. But the fact that filmmaking got nudged a bit over into the, hey, this art department task is worth our time because somebody is going to make a 45-minute video that is going to call it out and call it brilliant. Uh, and that was a really nice feeling of we... In, in this tiny, tiny, tiny way, a, an industry that we very much love, we're ho- hoping and helping to make it better, not just a super appreciated for everything that's already going into it, but aspiring to be a more trans media experience, right? And like the, the hunt for every element of this thing becomes part of this story. Marvel could just create the Fan Theory YouTube channel owned and run by Marvel. Why don't they? What unique things are you able to do that sort of the corporate overlords with this giant amount of money can't necessarily do as well? Because they're so big, they can't move like we move and they can't talk about everything that that we can. First of all, Disney does have a series on their YouTube channel, I think on a Marvel YouTube channel, that is basically kind of trying to be light breakdowns. But it, it suffers from the problem that I think any version of this would, which would be, this is not the story group saying, here's all the stuff that we loaded this with. This is marketing saying, how do we spread the word more and more about our, our films or TV shows? And then what are we allowed to say about those things? Right. So most famously, actually, Lucasfilm, right, is very, very, very intense to work with. Uh, there's probably not a canon out there that doesn't have more established details in books and, and the films and just every, and the number of experts that are out there. 
But if Lucasfilm makes something, the process it has to go through, and, and especially now with the Disney element too, to be approved to be shown to the public is removing probably, I'm, I'm not kidding, probably about 70% of the meat that was there. Here's a great example. We've done recent and in the past, we've done some small partnership brand deals with studios and it'll be some element like maybe they're trying to promote the DVD release of something or, mm -hmm. or whatever it is. They've, they've got some agenda, clearly. We will write our standard video and then they will filter that video down to basically, you can tell that like legal had a big pass on this where we can confirm who made the piece of content. We can confirm the actors that appear on screen. Literally, you get to the point where you're not even allowed to say a character's name because this project did not get like IP sign off for that name, right. even though it's implied, right? It could be a Batman project and we can't mention the Joker because the Joker was not negotiated as part of this project right, to be right. mentioned. That distance obviously lets us say anything that a fan could say and right. it will prevent them from ever really being able to get into what we get into. I think it was a fan or someone at one point put it a certain way that I thought was such a simple way to understand it is that I love going to those channels um, for their theories and whatnot because I love non-spoilers. But what they meant by that was almost spoilers, maybe spoilers. I'm feeling like, ooh, did I just figure something out? Did I just get these dots connected? And I've now I know more than my friends do. And then maybe the movie comes out over. It's like, nope, I was wrong. They were wrong. We were all wrong. But that was a thrilling experience that I got to have. But especially yeah. because I wasn't sure if I was right. A studio can never get into, we might be spoiling our movie. <laughs> How do you stand out and separate and call yourselves like an original or develop that relationship with fans when there's just so much competitive content? Here's what's weird. I'm on a group text right now with all, almost all of our competitors and we just like joke around like crazy because we don't see each other as threats. And I think the way that actually works and maybe I'd like to hope exist too is that there might be a group text out there with the late night talk show hosts or the news anchors of the primetime news slots is that people go to the one that feels right for them and that comes from differentiation and if it's too much of a carbon copy then it actually usually is going to be worse so people that that just try to copy us i'm not really worried about them they're not going to do it as well and then if it's a familiar but different that is a nice sweet spot where it's like hey that's not what we do i'm very friendly with paul tweddle who's goes by heavy spoilers on on youtube he's based in the uk the guy is the fastest out of the gate every single time not just because he's eight hours ahead of our entire country but he has leaned into the speed element so he's shown me he has pre-built a video for when he thinks maybe a trailer is going to drop or an episode of a TV show is going to drop, he's written anything he can he think he can pre-write. He has pre-shot. He has dropped in those assets already so that only things that he didn't know were coming he has to add in. And he can, a few hours later, have a very, very solid piece of content out. But he will always be self-deprecating in that content because always say, I've, I know I missed 10,000 things, but New Rockstar is going to have that covered. One of the reasons I wanted to tell this story wasn't to describe the end-to-end -end growth of the channel. 
Really, I wanted to know how New Rockstars finds things to say in such a saturated space. I mean, we complain about how competitive our space is. Can you imagine being them? Really, it all starts with making trade-offs. Trade-offs are something we encounter all the time. I mean, one popular one that marketers encounter sounds like this. If your work is really for some people, it won't be for others. Stuff like that. Trade-offs. The thing about trade-offs, though, is the two things being weighed, while they're incompatible, are not necessarily undesirable. One of the two is not something you definitely don't want. If you're building a team, it's easy to say, no jerks, we're not hiring jerks. That's not a trade-off, not really. You'd have to say something like, no jerks, even if the jerks are top performers in their current jobs. Because everyone can get on board with no jerks, but what if the person in the interview is unbelievably talented and a perfect fit for the job you're hiring for, but they give off just a whiff of douchebaggery? Do you take the risk? Maybe not. You're making the trade-off. No jerks, even high-performing jerks. You'd like to have a high performer, but you're trading off their performance at your company for building a better team full of wonderful people. You might want both sides of the trade-off, but they're incompatible, so you have to pick one. For creators like new rock stars, trade-offs can be hard because everything feels so important, like it just has to work, that the thing you're trading away might feel like the thing that could help you grow. One trade-off that Holiday helped them make, for example, was between sustainability and speed. When I started, they were working a lot of late nights and weekends, and it was sort of grueling. I sort of said, no, this isn't a way to to run a business. This isn't going to work. So for example, if a trailer or something dropped on a, a Friday, they would they would work Friday night and Saturday to make the video. And I kind of came in and was like, do it Monday. People will still watch. That doesn't happen that often. But when it does, just wait. Just do it Monday. Stop working at five or six. Start again in the morning. Just little things like that and sort of trying to make three videos a week instead of seven right away. I've always had sustainability and like work-life balance and, and, and stuff for those of us that work there in mind. There's a lot of burnout in YouTube, a lot of turnover usually in these businesses. And so I take a lot of pride in just making it with some exceptions, you know, Comic-Con can be a busy week. And, and even then we try to plan ahead and no one should be working at New Rockstars 50, 60 hours a week. We've got good systems. And like I mentioned, people, most of the people that have worked there still works there because it's a good, healthy place to work, I like to think. And mm. so the fact that you guys are still getting videos specifically from Eric years later is like kind of a feat. The quality is so consistent because it's the same people. And right. so I guess that is how what I do affects the quality of the final product is just finding a way to do it that is sustainable so you can keep people doing it and, and they'll only get better at what they do the longer they're there. Sustainability and speed. They wanted both. But to be more sustainable, they had to slow down. And by slowing down and being more sustainable, oh, by the way, it helped them reap the rewards that speed ostensibly gets you. They grew faster. They stood out more because they didn't fall victim to the speed of the internet any longer. The speed of the internet 
dictates that you and I produce immediate hot takes and viral hits, not deep, thoughtful, lasting responses and ideas. So we optimize for reach, not resonance. We aim to be visible, often at the expense of being memorable. We try to be general to reach more people instead of being specific to reach the right people. And spoiler alert, the internet has infinite appetite for more content published even faster than before. But you and I do not have the corresponding capacity to meet that infinite appetite. So you can strap yourself to that hamster wheel, which itself is strapped to a jet engine, or you can step off it entirely. You can play a different game, your own game. Does new rock stars play into the YouTube algorithm, that supercharged hamster wheel in their corner of the internet? Sure, absolutely they do. But they also take steps to take back control. New rock stars has chosen to go a level or two deeper to ask those lingering questions. They don't prioritize all the news all the time, even though that might be useful. It's a trade-off. They realize the two are incompatible. So they made that trade-off and it helped. But here's a trade-off I see way too many creators making that does not help. Let's go to another Marvel character to describe this trade-off, the Winter Soldier. So initially, the Winter Soldier is a guy named Bucky Barnes, and he's Captain America's best friend. He's a great soldier, but he's just a guy. Until one mission, he falls off a train down into a ravine, and he's lost forever. Or so Captain America thinks. Really, Bucky Barnes was abducted by the bad guys. He was experimented on. He was given a metal arm to replace his missing limb. A super-powered, supercharged metal arm. He was given super serum to become a super-powered, supercharged human being. And for a while, he became a bad guy until he woke up and defected back to the good side. And now he's a superhero. And so the punchline is this. He's only a superhero because of his time spent with the bad guys. In my line of work, I kind of feel like the Winter Soldier. I started trying to be a sports journalist, a pure creator, someone who only cares about story and creativity and service to the audience. And most of my kind don't ever think about or learn marketing, the business side. We are bad at selling in our ideas because we don't think like the suits. We're bad at navigating our careers or the business world or all these things that just don't seem compatible with creativity. Me, it was pushed on me. I wanted to work in print journalism. It didn't work out that way. I got a job in marketing and I learned a lot of useful things. And now I kind of feel like I'm awake. I'm an independent creator trying to make what matters most, trying to help others do the same. And I can use this metal arm and these superpowers given to me by folks I didn't ever think I would encounter. I can use that stuff for greater good. But here's the thing. This is not actually a trade-off. These two things, being great creatively and being great at business, they're actually very compatible. They work in harmony. Both are needed if we're gonna make what matters and each of them helps the other side. They're both part of the process of resonating with others. Hiring jerks does not support your goal of building a better team, even if the jerk is very talented on their current team. Those two things are incompatible, hiring the talented jerk and building a great team. Do you wanna wake up early or stay up late? You probably can't do both because together they're incompatible. Creativity and business, creativity and process, these things, are not incompatible. These are not trade-offs. 
either can be good. And you should care about both. Where I get so sad is seeing one side right off the other. The business side might see creativity as random stunts or it's an innate gift that only a few people create and, and I'm more of a numbers person. I can't be creative. Or, or maybe they see creativity as an approach that's void of seriousness that doesn't actually yield results good for business. The creative side might see the business side as stifling. You stifle creativity or you're short-sighted or aggressive. But listen to this very podcast. Go back and listen to more episodes. The folks who marry their understanding of building businesses with their refreshing, craft-driven, audience-first creativity, those people do the most remarkable things in this world. I wish someone had told me sooner that this is not a trade-off. Because then maybe my winter soldier analogy wouldn't be true because I wouldn't have felt so tortured trying to be a pure creator during my marketing jobs. I would have learned more about the business and marketing side with an open mind and reached new heights as a result. I wouldn't have felt like temporarily the villain or the anti-hero doing marketing, caring about business, hitting my numbers. And you don't have to feel that way either. You don't need to be the winter soldier. You can just be super you. Defender of your audience, bringer of goodness and great writing or products or services, or Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness trailer breakdown videos on YouTube. The trade-off between thinking in processes or thinking about business and thinking creatively or thinking about serving your audience, the fact that we even consider that stuff a trade-off is a great lie that we are sold. It starts in our days at school. When I decided what to major in in college, it was either going to be economics or theater performance. <laughs> I always had these two kind of just real separate set of interests or skills, and I always did them separately. So my day job was always sort of running some small business, and then at night I would write. And, and eventually I started doing a little producing my own writing, and it, it really did feel like feel like I had a superpower because if I wrote something and I wanted it to be made, well, you know, it, it could be made because I could do that myself. For honestly, a lot of years when I was young, I, I was weirdly sort of self-conscious about this sort of organizational management business side because I felt like a real creative person doesn't know how to organize things. You know, there's that sort of stereotypical <laughs> thing of the creatives are just messy and late, they're artists, blah, blah, blah. And I was very not that. And so I felt that made me less creative. But then over time, once I saw that, no, it gives you more power. Totally. My mom is a preschool teacher and has been for 25 years. My dad is a software engineer. And so she's wildly creative and whimsical and he's very organized and logical. And they would see me as a kid, like making these elaborate vehicles and creatures and scenarios and worlds out of Legos. But then I would like incredibly neatly line up everything and it had to be just so. And they'd like look at each other and go, oh no, like we are both warring in this kid's brain. <laughs> And I actually think like I found my way into this niche, call it content marketing or creator entrepreneurship or whatever. You, you do need both sides. What do you like about the back end stuff? It's easy for the layperson to sort of sit back and be like, I get why you'd want to go on camera and like talk about your favorite movie. I'm sure there's stuff that lights you up about that 
more hidden work? Ooh, I love it. It's problem solving. The first way doesn't work. The second way doesn't work. But if you like really think about it, you can come up with some like third way that makes everyone happy and satisfies everything. And I just really like working that part of my brain. It's so clear when you're succeeding, when something worked. If you are thoughtful about just trying one new thing at a time, you can kind of know that like, this is the impact that that had. Let us continue doing it. It's almost like points or something. Like, I don't mean to say it's like a game. It's serious. It's people's livelihoods. I don't, I don't um, take it lightly, but, but it's just very, very clear when you're doing well, when you're not, what worked, what didn't. And I just find that very satisfying. New Rockstar stands out because of, well, so many reasons. Reality is messy and complicated. If you're looking for a nice, neat list of universal takeaways, you're listening to the wrong show, my friend. But the things that I've grown to admire most about them, as a fan, a subscriber, and now someone who's been somewhat behind the scenes and at least told a percent of their story, the things I admire about new rock stars and their team is their ability to make tough trade-offs. Both halves of the trade-off might be desirable, but because they're also incompatible with each other, they make a tough call. They do things in the name of sustainability and, quite frankly, fun. They trade off a certain level of speed to be more sustainable. They trade off the obvious wins, like news or the question or topic about a film that everyone is searching for, in favor of the lingering question, the deeper layer down, sometimes two or three layers deeper. And that gives them the time and the headspace to pursue their own curiosity, which is why they stand out, which is why they've earned such passionate fans. You and I share that internal fire to create meaningful things. And sometimes, I know, we allow it to consume us. We struggle to harness that feeling, to point it towards the things that really matter most. And at our worst, that internal fire causes us to burn out. It turns out that brute force has a very specific manifestation in this digital age of creativity. It's algorithm gaming and shouting louder, trying to be on every channel, publish more and more volume or publish faster and faster. Brute force is not a sustainable strategy, despite the ideas you're sold, despite the appetite that feels so irresistible to try and meet across the internet. And in those moments where we feel ourselves succumbing to that appetite, where we feel ourselves pressing harder and trying to brute force through something, it's so tempting to think, well, whatever, this is temporary, this is necessary to get us to the next milestone. This is temporary. But I'd ask you, is it? And if it's not, what trade-offs can you make that despite both things being desirable, you recognize they're incompatible with each other? What trade-offs can you make that if you did, you might feel like a super-powered version of yourself or, if you prefer, like a rock star? From Marvel Studios, it's the Podvengers, including Captain Podmerica, Natasha Podmanoff, aka Black Waveform, Audio Man, The Incredible Host, The Breathy Thor, and also Hawkeye. See the Podvengers only in theaters.
Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me, Jay Akunzo, with production support from Alana Nevins. If you had any thoughts or questions on this episode, on the show overall, or my entire body of work, email me, jay at unthinkablemedia.com. I'm also at Jay Akunzo on Twitter. I write, create shows for brands, and teach others how to resonate deeper with their work. As an independent creator, I rely on the support of listeners like you. Every time you share the show, leave a review, or buy a book or my course on podcasting from my website, I'm able to continue making this show and keep it free to find and enjoy. So thank you so much for your support. I literally could not do this work. Literally. Literally. Couldn't do it without you. So thank you. I'm back next week with a brand new episode of the show. Until then, you know the deal. Keep making what matters. See ya. Thank you once again to our sponsor today, Riverside. I use Riverside for all of my projects involving audio and video. I even use it to shoot single standalone monologue videos, even when I don't have a guest. So all my audio and video content comes through the Riverside platform. It's a gorgeously designed, very simple and intuitive platform to help you create high quality multimedia content. It's like you have your own personal studio right in your browser. Best of all, if you do have guests and you invite them into Riverside, it's a really beautiful experience. So you come off as incredibly professional as opposed to, you know, the grainy footage on Zoom or all the wonky robo voices you end up with using Skype. Use a tool actually built for recording high quality audio and video. Use Riverside. Check them out at riverside.fm.